0: Welcome to the Lab Life Podcast, a candid insight into the life of an undergraduate researcher. I'm your host, Richard Song. I'm an aspiring research scientist and undergraduate student at Vanderbilt University studying computer science, applied math, and neuroscience. In this series, I invite you along my weekly research journey and share lessons I've learned in the lab. So you've taken everything that you learned from this podcast, and you're finally ready to present your interesting findings. Great work. This is a huge milestone. Now the question becomes, how can you best present your research project in an effective and efficient way? In part one, we talk about the process behind creating posters and writing papers. In part two, I share a very interesting interpretation of my results and highlight specific brain regions that I personally found to be vital to verbal working memory that are impacted by parietal lobe transcranial direct current stimulation, or TDCS. So without further ado, let's discuss. In part one, we're going to talk about creating posters and writing papers. Posters and papers are arguably two of the most common ways that researchers use to present their research findings to other scientists. Now, before we begin this, to specifically discussing creating both posters and papers, I want to talk about something known as the research workflow. And the research workflow is essentially how you keep your results and methodology organized. And this is really important because if all of your findings are in disparate places and your methodology is all over the place and you can't directly pull what it is, then it becomes really hard to synthesize everything together and to create a poster and a paper in the first place, which is why it's really important to stay organized and have a good research workflow. Now, to create a good research workflow and to keep track of all your findings, I recommend creating two things. And both of them are actually PowerPoints. So first I recommend creating something called a brain dump PowerPoint. And the brain dump PowerPoint is essentially a PowerPoint which highlights every single result, methodology finding that you have ever found, regardless of how insignificant they are. And the reason for this is because you just generally want to keep everything that you've worked on all of your progress in one centralized place so that you don't have to pull from different folders to access different findings. So an example would be my verbal working memory project, for example, where my brain dump PowerPoint was essentially me putting down every single graph that I've created for every brain region and every methodology that I use, whether that's whole brain novas or pulling from peak voxels or time series analysis, etc. Basically every single analysis that I have ever conducted and all the plots that I created will go into this brain dump PowerPoint. At the end of the day, I may only use 30 to 40% of all of the plots that I put in my brain dump PowerPoint, but the fact that they're all in one place makes it very easy to access and makes it so that writing a poster or a paper will be much more efficient. The second PowerPoint that I also recommend that you create for your research workflow is what I like to call the conference PowerPoint. And the conference PowerPoint is a much more, uh, it's a much more polished PowerPoint with your most important findings. And specifically your conference PowerPoint will be very clear about the methodology that you use, and will only highlight the findings that you would want to include on a a paper or a poster. To create this conference PowerPoint, I recommend that you specifically pull from your brain dump PowerPoint. And once you've given your brain dump PowerPoint enough thought, and really written down on paper I recommend your most important findings and some interpretations, then you would include the figures that are representative of those findings into your conference PowerPoint. So really it first starts with the Brain Dumb PowerPoint. And then what you really give it some thought, give it some reflection and then narrow it down to the conference PowerPoint. Now, these two PowerPoints, the Brain dumb PowerPoint and the conference PowerPoint are very important to the research workflow, in my opinion. And they were honestly a really big mistake that I made as my first year student in my research in that I didn't actually keep any sort of record of my research via these PowerPoints. I just had all my findings in separate folders in different places and all of my code that I wrote to get to those findings also in different places, which meant that when it came to writing my final research report, I had to rerun various MATLAB scripts and pull from different folders, et cetera. And the whole process was just very, very messy and it took a lot, a lot longer than it really should have. All right, so that's the research workflow. Now let's talk about making some figures. So figures are very important, both to posters and papers. Without figures, your audience doesn't know from a visual standpoint, what it is that you're talking about. So a figure can really help them um, learn things, especially if they're more of a visual learner. So my favorite tool to use to make figures now is actually the programming language called R. And I've talked about R a few times in the past, but R is really good for running statistical tests and creating figures. R specifically has this library known as ggplot2, And ggplot2 allows you to create these various plots um, very easily, and also you can customize the plots however you please so that they look very visually appealing. And specifically in R, I've been, for my project in verbal working memory, I've been making violin plots and scatter plots. Violin plots essentially are like box plots, but they allow you to see the distribution of points a lot clearer. And scatter plots, as the name suggests, are just plots scattered on an XY Cartesian plane. After I create my um, figures, I like to edit them in PowerPoint um, just to add like labels on them or to combine figures together. I've also noticed that with making figures, you want to make your axis labels very, very big. Beforehand, I made my axis labels really small, around 14 to 16 font in Calibri, and I realized that when you paste these figures onto your poster, it's hardly legible at all you really want to make your access labels very big around like 24 28 point font calibri or times new roman or whatever font that you want to use right think big otherwise they won't be able to be seen and finally if you can you want to try to condense figures as much as possible because certain papers actually will only accept up to five figures you can't create too many figures is what i'm saying of course Figures are very good, but you have to come up with a way to combine them and to synthesize them. So, for example, with me, um, a lot of my violin plots will come with an associated brain, a uh, brain image that highlights an important brain area that's activated. So, one thing I can do to combine these figures is to basically put that brain image on top of the scatter plot or the violin plot and Those are technically two figures, but because I put them on top of each other, they're now just one figure and they tell the same exact story. So if possible, you wanna try to condense figures as much as possible because certain um, papers and journals can only accept up to five figures or even less sometimes. All right, now let's go into the difference between creating a poster and creating a paper and how you should do each and when to do each. So a poster is really a supplement to a presentation. Um, posters are mostly presented at research conferences, whether that's a professional research conference or at your school. And with that, you are presenting it as well. Um, so really, a poster, a poster is a supplement to a verbal presentation, and thus it should be mostly figures-based. Right? Your poster, if it has too many words on it, then your audience is going to spend a lot of time trying to read those words and less time listening to your presentation. However, if it's more figure-spaced, then they'll be more focused on you. And then when you're saying something that's really important that has a figure that's supporting it, you point them to that figure and they can reference that figure while also listening to you. But they don't have to read a lot of text, hopefully. They don't have to read a lot of text and just become distracted from your presentation. So the rule of thumb when creating a poster really is the more figures and less words, the better. You really want to try to maximize that ratio of figures to words. So again, a poster is mostly figures and sometimes maybe captions to those figures, but try to limit the number of descriptives that you have in that poster Uh, that will go for the paper. And therefore, because a poster is mostly figures for the most part, if you already have your figures, which I just talked about, then putting together the poster is very quick. It can take sometimes maybe just a couple of hours really just comes down to how you want to organize those figures. On the other hand, a paper is its own standalone thing. You don't have a presentation to go behind the paper. So writing it up will take a lot more time and obviously it will require a lot more words than a poster. Papers on general will have what I like to call an hourglass structure. So if you think about it, an hourglass, it starts out, it looks like two inverted triangles kind of stacked on each other. It starts out wide, then narrows down in the middle, and then finally widens out at the bottom. And that's very similar to the structure of a paper in that the beginning of the paper or the introduction will start out very broad. It'll introduce general concepts that are relevant to the research project before narrowing down to specific hypotheses that you have about your research projects and the motivation for why you decided to embark on your project. In the middle are the methods and results, which are all very, very specific to your project and don't really reference anybody else's research. And finally, the discussion will also start out somewhat narrow in that it will talk mostly about your results and interpreting them before finally broadening out again and placing your results in the overall conversation of a general research area and explaining why your results are important to that area. So with that said, I recommend that you start with the methods and results because these are the most specific to your research project and they're also the most straightforward. They likely won't take very long. All you have to do are just regurgitate what you have done and post your and and essentially include some of your results and figures. And if you again have that research workflow, if you have those two PowerPoints, the brain dump PowerPoint and the conference PowerPoint that already highlight what you've done when when it comes to your methods and results, this step should not be very difficult. The, arguably the hardest parts of writing a paper are the introduction and the discussion, and this really also will depend on your principal investigator because a lot of times they have a certain style when it comes to writing introductions and discussions, when it comes to what to include in them, and how to um, basically carry them out. So I really recommend working with your PI when writing the introduction and discussion, especially on the literature analysis, because a lot of times they... Already have a strong collection of literature that are pertinent to your research project. So, one thing that is really somewhat confusing to um, new time researchers, even still myself, is what will go in the introduction and what will go in the discussion. So, if you remember the, the episode that I did on talking about introduction to discussion, I mentioned that the introduction and discussion are both sections in which you will reference a lot of external papers. Right. The introduction is mostly referencing um, the background behind your research project and what some other projects found regarding um, a similar research area that you're pursuing whereas your discussion is more talking about interpreting your results and that also comes by pulling um, results that other papers have also found. So the question now goes, you know what goes in the discussion versus the introduction and what i will say is that, that a general rule of thumb is that anything that has been replicated before already by other researchers can go in your introduction whereas anything that involves very specific and important results to your own project will go in the discussion so for example let's talk about working memory again right When it comes to working memory, it's been widely, widely postulated that it has this, or verbal working memory, at least, it has this very left lateralized response, right? In the beginning of the encoding phase, we see this alpha desynchronization start in the occipital cortex and slowly it moves forward to the prefrontal cortex. Right. This has been strongly postulated in the literature already, and something like this can go in the introduction section, because it has already been replicated. But something a little more specific to the project, so for example, my project on parietal lobe stimulation on verbal working memory, I found specific peaks that were very important in the brain to working memory. And I'd say interpreting those peaks and those results would go more in the discussion section. All right. So that's kind of the structure of writing the paper. Uh, One final thing I want to end on is talking about citations. So in an earlier episode, again, I also talked about the use of reference managers and reference managers are very important and very useful to keeping all of your citations and and your papers that you've read in one centralized place. And it also allows you to highlight and make annotations in that one area. So reading papers becomes a lot more convenient but write, having reference managers is also really good for writing a paper because a lot of times they have an add-on into Word, for example, Microsoft Word, such that when you click a button, it will automatically put the in-text citation for that reference, as well as the full um, bibliography citation, whether it's APA or MLA. So having a reference, site, reference manager is really good for um, inserting your citations very easily. Another method for uh, inserting your citations really easily, that I personally use when writing my research report at Vanderbilt is using something called LaTeX. And specifically, I use the software called Overleaf, which implemented LaTeX. Now, LaTeX is this, it's not really code, but it's more of this markdown language that helps you typeset, which means it helps you write math mathematical equations and make them look very professional. Um, So, LaTeX also comes with a feature that allows you to essentially paste in something called a bibliotech citation, and that will allow you to reference uh, and create in-text citations a lot easier, similar to uh, reference managers. But really, the strong point of LaTeX uh, for writing papers is when you have a lot of mathematical formulas involved with your paper. So, if you have a lot of mathematical formulas and you need to typeset them and make it look very professional, I'd recommend using LaTeX over something like Microsoft Word. Because as you may have experienced in the past, inserting equations inside of Microsoft Word or even Google Docs for that manner is a very big hassle and it's pretty difficult. Whereas in LaTeX, it's not very hard at all. It's very easy. So when it comes to writing mathematical papers, recommend using LaTeX. And specifically in order to write in LaTeX, I use this online platform called Overleaf. It's completely free. All you have to do is sign up. And once you do so, you'll be able to write in LaTeX and create really nice papers that have a lot of mathematical formulas. So those are the general gists of writing papers and posters. Again, you really want to create a very solid research workflow that allows you to keep your research organized. Afterwards, you want to start making your figures. You want to keep in mind that a poster is mostly figures-based because it's a supplement to its presentation, whereas a paper is more of a standalone thing. So of course it will have more words. When writing the paper, make sure to note the hourglass structure in which your introduction starts out broad and narrows down to the methods and results and finally opens back up again to the discussion. It's much easier to start with writing the methods and results because they're very specific to your project, whereas the introduction and discussion will take more time because they will reference other projects and place your research project in the grander scheme of things. It's always good to have a reference manager for citations which allow for really easy importing of in-text citations as well as bibliography, but I also recommend that you possibly use LaTeX when it involves coming up with research papers that are more mathematically based. This is part two of the Live Life podcast, where I discuss my weekly research updates at the Boys Town National Research Hospital Institute for Human Neuroscience. So this week, I really came up with a lot of interpretation for my results, and this largely occurred because I simplified my brain dump PowerPoint into my conference PowerPoint so that I had the most important results on my hand. And once I did this, once I basically blocked out all of the other results that weren't necessarily important to my central narrative, central research story, that allowed me to come up with a very interesting interpretation for my results so first let me kind of share with you the most important results that i included on my conference presentation let's talk about areas in the brain in which both stimulations to the parietal lobe both left and right stimulation will differ from the sham stimulation and specifically those two areas that i found that were very important were the left precentral gyrus and the right middle temporal gyrus So where are these visions? Well, the left precentral gyrus is, as it implies, on the left side. And it's on the precentral area. So your brain in the very center has this thing called the central sulcus, which is a groove that runs from your left ear to your right ear. And right in front of that is your precentral gyrus. And the precentral gyrus is very important for movement. It has the motor cortex. And specifically the left precentral gyrus contains um, an area that's responsible for the movement of your mouth and your tongue the right middle temporal gyrus is on your right side it's in the temporal lobe which is on the lower uh, the lower side of your brain toward the side near your ear and it's in the middle so the temporal gyrus contains three levels the superior level which is the top the middle, which is the middle, and the inferior, which is the bottom. So this is specifically talking about the right middle temporal gyrus, right? So these two areas where stem differed from sham is left precentral gyrus and right middle temporal gyrus. And oh, also the right middle temporal gyrus is important for uh, consolidating memory, consolidating sensory information. So it's very important overall to, to working memory. So specifically what I found was that when you simulated both sides of the brain, either side, it makes the left precentral gyrus work harder. However, it makes the right middle temporal gyrus work less hard. And this is really, really interesting, right? So there's this kind of, there's this kind of push pull relationship that we're going on, right? As one works harder, the other works less hard. And this made me kind of come to the conclusion That the right middle temporal gyrus, which works less hard, is almost a supplement to the right, to the left precentral gyrus. And that when the right shuts down, when the right works less hard, then the left has to work harder. And this is almost like a compensatory mechanism, right? When the left doesn't have that supplement from the right, it has to work harder. And the very interesting behavioral correlation that I found in these two areas was in that left precentral area, which remember worked harder, the harder that it worked, the less accurate you became at the working memory task, but in that right area, that right middle temporal area, the harder that you worked, the better you got, or inversely, the less that you worked, the worse that you got. So this is very interesting, and it almost seems to imply that stimulation is not a good thing because it makes you work harder in that left area, but it makes you work less hard in that right area, and as a result, you become less accurate. Now, this obviously isn't what I was hoping for when choosing this project. I thought it would be really cool if the stimulation would improve memory. However, this does tell us a very important mechanism behind working memory in general, which again is also very important to the overall research literature when it comes to working memory. And that there is this very, very prominent connection between the right and left areas, such that when one shuts down, when the the right shuts down, the left has to work harder. So this, uh, again, supports the theory that the right is almost a supplement to the left, even though when we traditionally think of verbal working memory, we mostly think of left lateralized areas. Now, the second finding that I think was also pretty interesting was that for right stimulation only, it additionally made the right precentral gyrus less activated. And along with this, we also saw less activation in the right inferior temporal gyrus. So this seems to suggest that the right precentral gyrus is somehow connected to the right inferior temporal gyrus, and when one works less hard, the other also works less hard. And remember, as I mentioned before, the right middle temporal gyrus also was working less hard and this made the left area work harder, and in this case, the right inferior temporal gyrus was also working less hard, and this specifically seemed to occur because the right precentral area was not working as hard when you stimulated only on the right side. So, some interesting points of order. First, it seems to me that only right stimulation has differential response, but not left stimulation. So what this means is that um, when I stimulated both sides, we saw this left precentral and right middle temporal effect. However, that right precentral and right inferior temporal effect only occurred on the right side. And this is quite interesting. And the reason, I think, why this might actually be happening is because maybe perhaps stimulation, on the parietal lobe at least, affects only tangential areas responsible to verbal working memory. So when we normally think of verbal working memory, we think of a few areas, such as the prefrontal cortex, we think of Broca's area, which is responsible for verbal production, and we think of the left su- supramarginal gyrus, which is responsible for phonological looping or playing that audio over and over in your head. However, the specific regions that we found to be affected were the left precentral gyrus, which is slightly behind Broca's area, the right middle temporal gyrus, which we mostly think to be associated with... Um, spatial working memory, but not necessarily verbal working memory, although the left-middle temporal gyrus is definitely associated with verbal working memory as well as the right precentral gyrus, which of course is just across from the left precentral gyrus. But none of these areas are directly responsible for verbal working memory. They are tangentially responsible, they're tangentially related, meaning that they help out these regions, they're strongly connected to these regions that are indeed responsible for working memory, such as the prefrontal cortex, such as Broca's area, and the left supramarginal gyrus. So what this could possibly imply is that stimulation, it becomes almost overpowered by these areas that are most responsible for verbal working memory, which is why when you stimulate the left side specifically, which has the strongest areas that are responsible, then there is no huge effect because it's almost like these areas that are most responsible are overpowering that left stimulation. However, stimulation seems to target like the weaker response areas, right? These areas such as the right temporal gyrus or the precentral gyrus that are tangentially related to verbal working memory, which is why also we see a differential effect when you stimulate on the right side specifically, because normally when we think of verbal working memory, we think of left side, whereas right side is slightly less activated, but it seems to still help in a tangential way. Finally, I wanted to talk about some connectivity analysis that I did for this week, but I want you to take this with a little grain of salt because a lot of these analysis, although they were significant, they don't really make sense to me at least yet, and I don't exactly know how they fit into the grander scheme of things for this research project, but here they are anyway. So I did a lot of connectivity analysis with the theta band specifically, and in that theta band, we saw those differences in the uh right medial temporal gyrus as well as the right precentral gyrus so i wanted to see how connectivity to those areas specifically changed when you had uh, stimulation versus no stimulation and what i saw was that data connectivity revealed a weaker connection for right stimulation to the prefrontal cortex from the precentral gyrus and the medial temporal gyrus. So these two areas were less connected to the very front of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, when you stimulated on the right side. However, what was really interesting was that these two regions also seemed to have stronger connectivity to left lateralized visual areas in the occipital cortex. So this is really strange, right? We see less connection to the precentral gyrus, which which makes sense because they were they had weaker responses when you stimulated right. But there's also the stronger connectivity to left visual areas. I'm not quite sure what this means, but it could po- they could possibly offset each other. Maybe when you see stronger connectivity to left visual areas, you subsequently see less connectivity to the front, and as a result, you know these kind of offset each other and uh, they don't make a really big difference. But I'm not completely sure what this means. I also saw that when you stimulated on the left, we saw reduced connectivity from the precentral gyrus and the uh, right medial temporal gyres. When you stimulated left, we saw less connectivity between these areas and the right visual areas. Again, doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Why is it that when we stimulate the left side, you see, you see less connectivity, you see more disruption in right visual to parietal and temporal areas? I'm not completely sure why this is occurring. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but again, here's the data, here's the results. I'll see what I can do next week to try to interpret these results a little more. Next week, I also want to try connectivity in alpha, and alpha is going to give us some really interesting peaks as well, such as that left precentral area I was talking about earlier, as well as the right inferior temporal area. And we really want to see when you stimulate, when you stimulate on left and right, how do those alpha areas change in functional connectivity? Maybe, hopefully, fingers crossed. In the perfect world, it tells us that that right to left connectivity is somehow weakened when it comes to simulation versus sham. But again, that's what I'm hoping for. Hopefully I can get those results, but even if I do or don't, I'll try to interpret those results for you guys next week. Thank you for listening to the Lab Life Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and leaving a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whichever platform you're tuning in from. So long for now, and I'll see you next week.